I think there is a good combination of nature and engineering. We are trying to find the best properties that nature gives us. And we think that lies in geology, specifically the field is called carbon mineralization. There are a bunch of rocks out there, specifically carbonates that have already pulled trillions of tons of CO2 from the atmosphere. Just like trees, they've pulled carbon out from the atmosphere to help maintain the carbon balance. The problem is that they're very slow at it. So what we do is figure out how we can make that go much, much faster on a human timescale so we can actually fight climate change within a reasonable period of time. Welcome to the Entrepreneurs for Impact podcast. My name is Chris Wedding and I'm your host. As a former private equity investor, occasional monk, startup founder, Duke and UNC professor, and mastermind guide for our climate CEO peer groups, I launched this podcast to share inspiring stories of CEOs and investors tackling climate change. Honestly, just got a little tired of all the doom and gloom. Through these interviews, I hope we can all become better founders, investors, entrepreneurs, and human beings by digesting these guests' secrets to starting and scaling climate companies, creating careers of impact, building habits and routines for higher productivity and health, and growing through maybe life-changing books and podcasts that they recommend. All right, let's get started. My guest today is Shashank Samala, the CEO of Heirloom. Heirloom is a VC-backed startup with over $54 million in funding for carbon mineralization with the goal of removing 1 billion tons of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere by 2035 and achieving this at a cost of $50 a ton. Just the kind of goals that we, uh, that we need. In this episode, we talked about lots of things, including carbon offsets versus carbon removal, combining nature plus engineering for quicker, low-cost direct air capture, how to use the 45Q federal tax credit to finance carbon removal projects, the evolving capital stack for carbon mineralization project finance, how key customers like Microsoft are helping them bring their technology to market, their company culture of persistent optimism and radical honesty, who they want to hire for high impact jobs right now at Heirloom, and lots more. Hope you enjoy. And please give uh, Shashank and Heirloom a shout out on LinkedIn or Twitter by sharing this podcast with your people. Thanks. Shashank Samala, CEO of Heirloom. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Chris, for having me. So we were, well, I was clarifying before press and record, what exactly is your all's name? So maybe folks have heard heirloom, heirloom carbon or te- the word technology somewhere, but now we're just, we're just heirloom. We're just heirloom today. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Maybe, maybe let's start there. So, so what, what's the, what's the origin of the name heirloom, Shashank? Great question. You know, we were actually called, this is a backstory, and how many people know, it used to be called Equiops. It's your short name for Equal Opportunities. I can talk, talk about exactly how I came up with that. But at some point, some investor told me that that doesn't really have a ring to it. So we went back to the <laughs> drawing board and we had, you know, something like 100 names on the board. And 
heirloom was one of those things. Uh, just as soon as it came up, we, we were like pretty excited by it. You know, heirloom as a word means protecting something and passing down for future generations. And here we thought it was the planet. It was the nature and all the diverse species that, that we live, uh, yeah. live around. So we wanted to, we wanted the heirloom to, to signify our planet. Also, because we are a direct air capture company it has air in it and, you know, heirloom, there is, there is a ring to it now. So nice, nice. <laughs> it's a great name. Great name. Well, why don't you give us the, uh, the kind of elevator pitch for, uh, for heirloom? Sure. Yeah. So heirloom is building a direct air capture uh, technology to permanently remove carbon from the atmosphere uh, with the goal of having a, a real path towards removing a billion tons of CO2 by 2035. You know, that's really the mission of the company to, to really accelerate our society to a, a carbon negative society. So, you know, this techn- specific technology rapidly accelerates the natural ability of minerals to absorb CO2. So, you know, compared to some other processes, we have focused on uh, enhancing ability uh, of, of natural minerals to absorb CO2 from the air from, you know, what would otherwise take years down to days. So, and we are about 60 folks based in uh, San Francisco. So, so geology-based versus, say, nature-based, is that fair? Yeah, I think there is a good combination of nature and engineering. In this, we are trying to find the best properties that nature gives us, and we think that lies in geology. You know, specifically, the field is called carbon mineralization, which is you know there are a bunch of rocks out there, specifically carbonates, that have already pulled billions of tons, trillions of tons of CO2 from the atmosphere over geological timeframes. Uh, you're talking limestone or magnesium carbonate. You know, just like trees, they've pulled carbon out from the atmosphere to help maintain the carbon balance. The problem is that they're very slow at it. So what we do is figure out how we can make that go much, much faster on a human timescale so we can actually fight climate change within a reasonable uh, period of time. Yeah. And this approach has, has gotten a lot of smart investors excited about this possibility. Can you tell us about maybe kind of what, what makes them interested in what you're doing, kind of how you're funding the growth of this, you know, kind of cutting edge approach to lower cost uh, yeah. carbon sequestration. Sure, I think the, the promise of this team and, and the approach is, is really around three things. One is you're leveraging filters, right? Like fundamentally, if you're trying to remove carbon out of the air, there is, you know, one molecule out of every 25, 100 molecules that you're trying to, catch and uh, you know it's, it's very hard to catch them so you need a really good filter and you know so far a lot of the tries uh, attempts have been around building really custom engineered filters and you know that's sort of what's contributing to the high cost and, and, and lack of scalability so what we said is okay let's start with something like super, super simple limestone in this case, and see if it can get low of economics for the entire system. So, you know, compared to engineered chemicals, engineered filters, limestone costs, you know, 50, 100 bucks a ton uh, compared to, you know, 50 to $100,000 per ton for, say, engineered chemicals. So, 
fundamentally, you know, that's the, the low cost filter is, is, is really the, the big promise. You know, the limestone is the second biggest commodity after water or something like that. Uh, it's, uh, it's incredibly abundant. It's actually used in cement production. So, you know, using that as our central base to capture CO2 molecules is really the, the big thing that folks are excited about. Uh, number two is we're trying to build them in a very modular way. You know, if you want to, you know, iterate quickly and we want to, you know, come down the cost curve quickly by producing these at scale at, in factories. So, and number three is the technical maturity. You know, we've actually not been around for that long. We are, you know, in about less than, less than 18 months, we, we've gone from, we've gone from grams to kilograms to tons to now yeah, many tons just in, just in that period of time. And mo mo most of that is because at the technical maturity of all these subsystems are, are, are fairly, fairly mature. You know, we are using industrial automation which, which has been, you know, around in you know, automotive or, or agriculture for a long, long time and, and applying them to directory capture. And, and your, it was your series A, I guess, right? That was, I mean, look, pre pretty healthy raise for a series A. As you went out to, to the market to kind of get feedback, what, what other kinds of feedback, I guess, did you get as you eventually landed on, what was it? I think 53 million was it, was your O's raise? Yeah, yeah, we've raised a bit more since then too. So, easier question, sort of, what other feedback have we gotten in in terms of technical risk, scaling risk, that type of thing? Yeah, I think I think investors hear you know a, a fair number of pitches around some version of carbon offset or carbon you know carbon capture, et cetera, and understanding what's what's real, what's now, what's permanent, what's low cost, et cetera, versus you know what what maybe is not. It can be hard for an investor, I suppose. That that kind of feedback, perhaps. Yeah, unfortunately, you know, one of the things that director capture overall actually has going for it is that it's highly permanent. It's incredibly high quality carbon removal, right? This is not an offset. You're actually removing CO two from the air. Uh, you can quantify it to the you know third decimal place. Uh, you know, <laughs> we have literally flow meters of the you know in the CO two gas line. You can see exactly how much CO two you've pulled. And it's verifiable. It's it's permanent because we are putting the CO two underground in geological reservoirs uh, that store the CO two for thousands of years. Um, eventually, they actually turn into stone. So it's as permanent as you can get. So generally, you know, these investors were excited that hey, eventually humanity will move to a a really high quality carbon removal solution, and director capture is as good as it gets. So the question for them is, hey, what is the lowest cost and highly scalable method within direct recapture? And, and this is the one, this was the one that you know they've done very very deep technical diligence. I mean, I've I've, I've grown probably lost a bunch of years. You just going through that, <laughs> right? Uh, Right. <laughs> Raked know, over the coals. Yeah. Yeah. You you interview Derek Toon at Breakthrough Energy Ventures. Right. Uh, yeah, I do. Uh, I do. Incredibly smart people. They, you know, they they really understand what it takes to, you know, go from, you know, lab and prototype to to really high scale. And they, you know, they ask really, really thoughtful questions, uh, things that are around the corner that you haven't yet. So having gone through that, we've learned a lot about, you know, what it takes, what, what technical risks we should go. Mm. We should on etc but you know it, it is very exhausting <laughs> right right yeah good process though and i think on your on your site perhaps you talk about um you know a goal maybe a near-term goal of 50 dollars a ton to have this high quality permanent uh, storage of of carbon sequester from the air 
maybe just kind of tell us more about, you know, where 50 bucks a ton ranks um, in the spectrum, right, of carbon offsets or carbon dioxide removal. Yeah. So just to be clear, carbon offsets are very different than carbon removals. And I think this is what you are uh, referring to, that there is quite a lot of press now. John Oliver just did a, a, a smackdown. Yeah. A smackdown of carbon <laughs> offsets. Exactly what it, that needs to be done. And there should be a lot more of it that needs to happen. You know, carbon offsets are these promises to avoid emissions from a project. And most of the times, the data shows that, you know, 85, 90% of these projects are not actually additional. You know, they would have likely otherwise happened anyway uh, without turning this carbon offset project into a financial mechanism. And you know, carbon removals is an is is a way to actually remove carbon uh, from the atmosphere, actually address the legacy emissions. It doesn't just help us decarbonize and mitigate climate change, but in fact, carbon removal is the only thing that helps us reverse climate change. Actually cool the planet back down because we put a couple trillion tons of CO2 in the air already in the last couple hundred years. You know, I I, I talk about you know, the contactors, these machines we're building as, as time machines, because, you know, we cannot go back in time. Uh, we don't have the technology to, to turn back the time yet, but we do have these machines to turn the clock back on in the atmosphere. So, you know, that's the really important distinction between offsets and removals. So in terms of cost, generally hundred bucks, under hundred bucks a ton, for removing one ton of carbon out of the air is sort of the holy grail for the field, for the entire field. And, you know, actually we just talked to Naeem Arshant in a different podcast about just what it takes to act, to get to under, under hundred bucks a ton. It's, it's not easy. I mean, it's one of the biggest engineering challenges and, and scaling challenges humanity has ever, ever taken on, you know, right up there with, you know, renewables and batteries and so forth. So, you know, we think that there is a really legitimate shot for this specific technology to get to even 50 bucks a ton. Um, and, and a few years ago, we released a paper in Nature that as a detailed TEA, Technoeconomics, you know, talking about the cost of feedstock versus the cost of the surrounding infrastructure and, and OPEX, the energy it takes to uh, remove carbon. And, you know, we, we showed how it's possible. Since then, you know, the architecture has changed for the better even. And, you know, generally, I think if you can be in the 50 to 100 bucks a ton, including storage and including cost of measurement and verification, you're in a great place for the planet. And in the recent Inflation Reduction Act, my understanding is there are some more, you know, some more attractive incentives for carbon capture and storage. What do those look like? How material are they for what you're doing versus what others that are maybe doing related things, perhaps? Yeah, Inflation Reduction Act, you know, just stepping back from my seat as a CEO, but and just as a, you know, a citizen concerned about climate um, and who had climate anxiety before starting the company. Like, as you know, like, I think you've, you've shared a lot of this optimism too, Chris. You know, this is probably the biggest step humanity has taken on as a collective to make a dent in in climate change and you know i know all the people people who've you know came out on the streets protested and brought their voices out for the last couple decades and you know hats off to them right because they are they were really the ones to be 
that we should thank and be proud of and and all of us coming coming to now to take advantage of these incentives to start companies the last few decades a lot of other folks have, have done the work the ngos the citizens the concerned climate folks to get us here so you know i want to share that how grateful i am to those folks secondly you know i think IRA is just helpful across the board. Um, we, we can talk about a whole podcast, uh, on a whole conversation just on that, specifically for directory capture. And directory capture is a carbon removal method that IRA is incentivizing to scale much, much faster. And there are a couple of different dimensions for how it's doing that. One is a lot more funding to help accelerate deployments early on by just direct deployment funding. So cost share, right? 40, 50% cost share on early deployments that are high cost. Early deployments will be more expensive just because they're earlier on in the cost curve and the technology curve, technology learning scale. So that's, that's really meaningful. And the second thing, and probably the most powerful thing is that they've changed the 45Q tax credit, which previously was about 50 bucks a ton for every ton of CO2 you remove from the atmosphere and store underground, they've increased that from 50 to $180 per ton. And, you know, that itself is pretty massive, but what's even more important is that this is stackable. So, you know, when we sell credits to Microsoft, let's say on top of that, for that same credit, we get a, a subsidy from the government. And what that does, it essentially, makes these earlier deployments closer to profitability so that we can go and finance them through traditional financing venture uh, instead of venture financing which is highly dilutive high cost of debt which would increase the cost per ton um, you can go after project financing infrastructure financing that really our entire financial system is built around right you can go after those traditional financing because you're able to you have a clear way to service that debt know that you have an extra lift from the government. So overall, I think this is a pretty massive accelerant for directory capture, but as, as IRA is for many other se sectors of climate, for directory capture, it's, it's really meaningful. That's, uh, that's super helpful and appreciate the, the gratitude as you started that out, not as just the CEO, but as a, as a citizen. We, we are standing on the shoulders of lots of folks, for sure, Absolutely. to be doing what we're doing yeah. I mean, uh, right now. Absolutely. I mean, like a lot of people, you know, it's like, wow, you really timed this well. And one is, wow, like, you know, a few years ago, it didn't seem like that. It actually felt sort of crazy to try to build a company removing carbon. Agreed. Agreed. But, yeah. You know, and honestly, the optimism at that point came from, you know, looking at the younger generations, folks who are standing up and, and knowing that and having a, a positive bet on humanity. Humanity will take this on themselves to solve. And, you know, I actually thought something like that would take, you know, probably a decade to get to, um, but I've been pleasantly surprised uh, to see all of the changes that happened in the last few years. Yeah, yeah. here, here. So let, let's go back to your, your example here where the government now through this 45Q tax credit can reward carbon capture projects with 180 bucks a ton and project developers, project owners can sell the same ton to Microsoft to help reach their carbon negative uh, goals. If you can share a little more, like what are corporates paying? I mean, I have a sense, but what, what are corporates paying for these, you know, look earlier stage, not quite scaled, therefore inherently more expensive permanent uh, carbon removal. So the like 180 plus X equals a number, but that's probably... I, th I think I hear you saying it's still not profitable for your, for you or maybe peers, right? 
Because this shit's so early still, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, imagine, you know, <laughs> imagine the car industry in like 1905 mm. or solar industry in like 80, 80s or 90s, right? We are so early and we are trying to figure out methods to accelerate, literally put this thing on steroids and a bunch of different ways to, to try to get to a scale where it actually matters for the planet. Again, like if you're not at the gigaton scale, this really doesn't matter what we're doing. So generally this stuff is, you know, early on the technology curve, like, you know, we're building these by hand, not in a factory. There is lots of refinements in design and technology and efficiency process improvements that, that need to happen. And, and we need time for that, right? And during that, there's these, these things. So basically the, the, the price per ton for a lot of these high quality CDR technologies are in the high hundreds of dollars per ton. And that's still what, you know, that, that, that's what these customers are paying. And, you know, the, the whole purpose of the deployment funding, not just the, the subsidy, but also the deployment grants help us quickly get to a bunch of deployments, four or five, six of these, so that we can learn from them, understand a lot of the times, for example, early technologies and not just early and small volume, we're also over-instrumenting them, right? We have all sorts of sensors, all sorts of, we're oversizing a bunch of different parts mm. of the technology because right. we don't want to take risks on, because we don't know yet in, uh, about the process. So it's really about maximizing the rate of learning which fundamentally just exponentially increases costs at the beginning. And you make that investment because you want to come down that cost cover as quick, quickly as possible. That's helpful. T tell us about, um, you know, think about project finance and, you know, I mean, certainly the debt for sure and probably the equity. They want to know that there's X number of years of contracted revenue, predictable revenue, let's say. Um, so, so tell us more about the 45Q, like how many years, you know, do you, can projects receive those benefits? And then how long are customers willing to sign up, right? To, yeah. to, to buy these, these removals as well? Great question. So uh, the way the DAC subsidy works uh, is that it's 12 years from the initial uh, commissioning of the project. So in order to qualify for that 45Q credit, you have to begin construction on a plant by end of 2032. So the plant that you build in 2032 can extend to 2044 uh, in terms of uh, how long that plant will receive the 45Q credit. So, you know, we were talking, in, you know, between 12 to 22 years from now that, you know, th this, this policy will be around for. And that type of long-term predictability is exactly what a project financier looks for. And that predictability also encourages a customer like Microsoft to say, hey, we know that this, this credit will be around for a long time. We can also write a 10-year contract at X dollars per ton for X Y volume. And that's exactly what we need, right? We, we need to write these carbon purchasing agreements that are very similar to power purchasing agreements on the solar and wind side. And that's one of the important innovative financial tools that really enabled solar and wind to grow like they have uh, and come down the cost curve that, like they have. And that's exactly what we need to do on the, on the carbon side of things. We need long-term predictable carbon offtake by companies that have good credit, along with a, a predictable policy incentive like the 45Q to encourage a, a lender like a Macquarie or a Goldman to say, hey, this project is going to make money. I will give you, you know, X amount of millions of dollars to go build this project. Uh, so it's actually financeable. Yeah, it's it's neat to see this evolution because, as you say, 
it's been done before, just in other industries, right? I mean, my, part of my background is, is, is real estate, private equity, or solar project finance. And, you know, you have leases and you have these, as you say, power purchase agreements, which are really kind of sort of the PPA, you know, it's, it's a business model innovation, converting CapEx to OpEx and transformed who, who could fund these projects, right? Get these things built. So, so flash forward, Shashank, let's say you build a project, you know, uh, next year. So you have 12 years, let's call it, of, of predictable revenue. Flash forward, you know, year seven, eight, nine, ten. 10. What does visibility on uh, revenue, do you think, look like for those projects? What is, how does the financing change for those projects? Uh, once your current, you know, capital stack, if you will, kind of expires. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think the question here is around just like how the capital stack evolves from now. Yeah, to for sure. Next five, 10 years. Yeah, generally. So, you know, right now, many of these climate tech companies start out mostly venture, right? And maybe some grants layered in. And I think you want to get to a world where it's 80% project financing. So basically debt and 20% project equity. So, you know, folks who are lower down in liquidation preferences, but then basically have rights to all the free cash flows that generate after that debt is paid out. So, you know, that's how a lot of these wind and solar projects are financed today, right? And that's exactly, I think what happens in the middle is really what uh, climate tech needs to figure out. And I think for every technology, every company, it's going to be different. And for us, the, the way we think about it is starting to layer in grants and, and you know, deployment funding available for these initial first-of-a-kind plants, still venture some of it, and then start to layer in some project equity. So not project debt yet, but project mm-hmm. equity, and then slowly transition that into just grants and uh, sorry, deployment grants from the government and project equity, start layering in some project debt, and then phase out grants and then, so yeah, it's, it's an evolution. Uh, mm-hmm. It's going to mm-hmm. take, you know, five to 10 years likely. And how we do that is, is as important as building the technology and, and selling these credits. Yeah, I think what, what you're describing, you know, others could call or, you know, the, the, a buzzword, right, is, is folk, folk financing, right? So for, first of a kind financing where, you know, you all are, you all are not alone, right? What, very well funded with venture capital company, removing tech risk, but to get scale to matter to, to the climate, you've got to go from corporate finance to project finance. But that's a big leap, right? I think you did a good job describing how the, that capital stack is going to evolve. I think for those listening who, who have an interest, this is one of the toughest nuts to crack, mm-hmm. right? In the kind of life cycle uh, of climate technologies, this folk financing or you know, this like blended finance models, right? Whereas you're, as you're describing, you've got some government or maybe foundation or concessionary return capital that takes a lot of the risk, right? And, and then allows for market rate capital to come in the door, first equity, then later, then later debt. Yeah, you know, the, one of the things that I, I, I think a lot about, you know, having started a company and sort of hardware and, and, and sort of electronics manufacturing, which is very CapEx heavy, to now in climate tech. And one of the things I've realized early on was, you know, there's three main pillars that you have to get right. And all of them have to really work well together. That's capital policy and technology. And, you know, capital is 
you know, has to has to be fairly well aligned with where the technology is, how much technical risk there is, and how much policy risk there is, or if there's policy tailwinds, how you can leverage those to to really magnify uh, what capital can do for the business. And I think one of the ways to think about capital is how does that evolution of the capital stack look like? And that's why, you know, good finance leaders, good structured finance folks in the company, um, you know, I think your finance arm is going to look as is going to look larger than a, you know, a SaaS business with their own finance team, right? Because they're, they're as important to help you scale. So, and there's, there's quite a, f- a few thought leaders on this. But yeah, this is an important value of death uh, that, that you need to solve. So you, you mentioned a uh, team there. Let's, uh, let's, let's drill down a little more on that. Maybe describe the kinds of, of team members or I guess departments, team members, backgrounds, skill sets that are currently part of your 60 um, FTEs. And then maybe, I don't know, who else you're looking for to join the team? I'm, I'm, I'm sure you're hiring. Yeah. You know, one of the things with Climate Tech, uh, I realized too, is that just the breadth of the skill sets you need to even build one prototype, right? We need everyone from research scientists, process engineers, chemical engineers, electrical, mechanical controls, you know, computational fluid dynamics engineers. Uh, it's mechanical. It's, it's literally everywhere. Oh, I, I, you also have to, you know, build your HR teams, your <laughs> finance and commercialization. Yeah. So I think that that's where we are. Uh, we are basically always recruiting across all of those teams, um, especially if you're a mechanical engineer uh, or know some mechanical engineers, feel free to look at our job site. Uh, we are heirloomcarbon.com, always looking for great folks who really align with our culture. And our culture is really about uh, three main principles. Uh, one is radical honesty, you know, being able to challenge each other and pursue the truth and, and being able to be kind with, with each other and, and, and really build each, each other up in pursuing this journey. Uh, the second one is persistent optimism. We really mm. believe that this is a really long journey and, uh, and the problems are going to be really hard, technical, commercial, policy, whatever it is. And you need a lot of perseverance um, and, and also one that is grounded in optimism. You know, not necessarily willful ignorance uh, or, or or false hope, but rather in calculated bets, in calculated optimism. Uh, and, and number three is maximizing learning rate. Uh, we believe very, very highly that being curious learners and, and always being uh, open for new ideas and ensuring that our learning learning rate is compounding over time is the, that's the only way we can get to a billion tons. Um, you know, the technology that we use today may not be the technology that gets us to a billion tons or the, maybe the design choices or the architecture choices. So we have to be nimble and uh, agile and, and learn quickly. So if you identify with those three principles, uh, you're the place for you. I, I like those a lot. The, uh, the persistent optimism it's interesting how, how you have the word persistent, right? Because I'm, you know, we're all going to get knocked down, right? But it's like, what what is the trend of your mentality, right? Is it generally pessimistic, doom and gloom, anxiety, or is it optimism? Yeah, I mean, yeah. one of one of my favorite sayings, you know, are pessimists are usually right, uh, but it's the op- optimists who change the world, and uh, I, I, there's so much truth to that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we should all have a healthy dose of pessimism and pragmatism inside us, but uh, you know, which which side of us uh, we we let dominate? Uh, I think mm. it should be optimism. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, the the radical uh, honesty piece, and and actually also in your last goal, the const, the kind of um, maximize learning. 
you know, I heard this, this, this curiosity, right? So it reminds me this, this morning, I was uh, kind of looking back at some underlying notes in this book called uh, Think Like a Monk mm-hmm. uh, by Jay Shetty. And um, one of the, I guess, I forget what he was referencing, but the kind of soldier versus scout mentality. And the soldier, like they have land to defend, right? So mm-hmm. it's very subjective, defensive. The scout is objective, right? Just tell me the facts, baby. Super curious. <laughs> and I was like, what, what an interesting difference in how we can approach our work, our, I mean, frankly, our personal lives as well. The scout mentality is what we're after, I think. It's awesome. That's, that's yeah. really cool. That's a great framework. Let's switch in our last kind of five or six minutes to the, um, the kind of personal or reflection side, if you will, Shashank. Yeah. So thinking back to your younger self, Tell us, you know, one or two pieces of advice you might provide. Sure. Yeah. You know, just as a context, and I, I grew up in Southeast India and, uh, you know, growing up, my, my parents sacrificed a lot for our education. Very, very fortunate. So, and, and also growing up, I saw firsthand impacts of climate change and wanted to see how I can help. And I'm very, very lucky to have had the opportunity to move to the U.S. and, you know, went to good schools and have the opportunity that I have. You know, if I sort of went back, you know, mostly I, I would have said, hey, be grateful, more, be more grateful <laughs> for, for what you have. And because, uh, yeah, definitely been very fortunate. But, and I think a couple of things I would probably tell myself if there was uh, some constructive critique is uh, just not conflate my, defic- my definition for happiness with other people's definition of happiness. And I think, you know, when, when you're, no, I think that so socially we've evolved to, you know, being groups and, and, and have, you know, the, the, the mimetic theory, right? And, you know, conflating what we think from, from what other, other people think. So, you know, just, it, it's, a, it's, it's a trait, but I think following your gut, following your heart, you know, really listening to what makes you happy versus what other people say it is. So that's one, uh, I think, you know, once I've realized that it, it changed my experience of the world, uh, with the kinds of things I focused on and, you know, being able to take big risks, but to others, it may be big risks, but for me, it's like, it's the natural thing to do. It's, I cannot see any other way. So, because I think that really gives you clarity about who you are and who you're not, but it's, it's a hard one though. It's easier to be said than done to, to be able to tune out the, the other, other folks' voices and really listen to yourself. The other thing is, you know, be careful of the hedonic treadmill. So it's, it's also a tough one because we've evolved to, to go after, you know, always wanting more, always uh, desiring more for yourself. And I think the book Sapiens talks about our, the, the luxury trap, right? Uh, once, you, once you are used to a, a level of well-being, uh, standard of living, you get used to it. And then when, once you add elements to that life, yeah, you, you keep on going. And, and then it's really hard for you to come back down that standard of living. And, and I think for me, what I realized is, you know, you just can keep going up that luxury trap, uh, but eventually it actually reduces your optionality about what things you, you can do in life. Because, you know, there's, yeah. there's a big burn rate, personal burn rate every, every month, and that re- reduces your flexibility for the ca- kinds of things you want to try. So fortunately, I haven't gone up that trap too much uh, to, to have said, okay, I want to start a, another company. So. Right. Yeah. The, uh, someone said that our happiness is a ratio of kind of appreciating what we have in the numerator <laughs> versus thinking about what we want in the denominator. So haves over once, you know. Yes. 
which is a nice kind of mathematical representation. Yeah. You know, on the deciding what your version of success or happiness is, a, a question that, that that I try to ask myself or, you know, pose to our CEO members as, as food for thought is, like, what, do you, what are you solving for, right? It's probably not what your peer is solving for, perhaps, or what are you, what, what are you optimizing for? Yeah, and I think it's for me, it's uh, it's three things. And I think more or less I've, I've learned that this framework actually works for a lot of people. So for me, it's long-term happiness, medium-term happiness, and short-term happiness. And long-term, it's about working towards something that's beyond yourself. I, I think humanity is just a firefly in, 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 in the cosmos. So, you know, in, in the in, insignificant that we are, I, I think we still like to... Uh, work on something that means a lot more to the world and and helps others reach the level of happiness that you have by giving them the, the basics of, of what they need. So mm-hmm. I think, you know, long term, that's that. I think medium term, I, I find that working towards something with a team, with a group of folks who are very passionate about the same things that you are, and making progress towards them and, and feeling like you are contributing, you are, you know, reaching those milestones. In the medium term, that 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 is an important part of what makes me happy. And in the short term, in the short term, in a day to day, when I think we should still wake up, you know, wanting to, you know, looking forward to that day to day challenge uh, of being intellectually stimulated and having challenging problems, whether it's policy, commercialization, technical, and you know, I, I think if you layer all those three things together, I, I think you 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 make for a really good framework for for happiness i think you know so obviously relationships uh, for me are definitely going to that second category whether it's working on on something much greater than me with a team or whether it's uh, my personal relationships as well that that's a good framework and on that last piece around you know kind of needing or wanting a challenge right i mean in a way struggle with a little bit It, it reminds me of this story from i think biosphere i can't recall whether it was one or two but after some number of years, the trees there started kind of leaning over. And the, the scientists were like, what, what is going on here? All the nutrients are right, the air is right. And they realized there was no wind. Mm. There was no wind to kind of, you know, give them a backbone, you know, stand up straight. It's like, huh, I guess we, I guess we need a little challenge yeah. in life perhaps. Or at least that's, that's what I tell my kids, right? Yeah. yeah, you got a challenge? Good, suck it up, right? You're building a backbone. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's that's really cool. That's a good good way to think about it. Well, I, I know we're we're about out of time here, Shashank. Is there a book or podcast that uh, you might suggest folks could kind of pick up uh, post uh, post listening to this book or a podcast? Yeah, I, you know I'm a big fan of Jim Collins's books. You know, Good to Great, mm. uh, Building Enduring Companies. And I'm reading Beyond Entrepreneurship, uh, B B two point right now. Yeah, just a really great strategy thinker and has done quite a lot of research around what endures companies for a long, long time, uh, for decades. And I think when it comes to climate tech and carbon removal, I think about that a lot. It's 20 years from now, guess what? We're removing carbon. 50 years from now, guess what? We're still removing carbon. (laughs) Um, So, you know, how do you build a movement, a culture, a, a company around that ambition? So, I'm sure you get you get this a lot from other folks. Kim Stanley's Robinson, Kim Stanley Robinson's Ministry for the Future. Yeah. Uh, so, one of my favorite books. It, it's quite amazing how much of that fiction is now coming to reality. Um, yep, it's quite uh, 
quite interesting. My go-to tool is is actually just Notes, the, the Notes app on on my iPhone, mm. and um, yeah, I think that's one of the things you you mentioned here, like the tools that that I love. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, so you, you're, you're, I mean, for me, it's like you, you capture ideas while you have them. So they, so they don't escape you. Right. Um, on, on, in notes versus let's you, you wait to put them somewhere else or then it's like some notebook somewhere, you know? Yeah. Th- that notes app is the most valuable thing I have period. Like I mm. just, I don't think I've, I don't know. <laughs> it's I mean, obviously yeah. my personal relationship, yeah, yeah. But, yeah. you know, um, it's quite amazing just seeing your, how, how you evolve as a human uh, just going back and, and reading thoughts from many, many years ago. You also asked for quotes. Um, yeah, yeah. Give us one. Go for it. Prepare, so I, I actually can't. So one of the things I've been thinking a lot about is, uh, is, you know, reading a lot about uh, is leadership. And, you know, one simple thing I recently came across is leadership is not doing things right. It's doing the right thing. And I sort of, I mean, I look back of, you know, last 10 years of my leadership experience, and I, I think it's uh, evolving from a manager into a leader. Mm-hmm. I think that's, that's so right. Um, you know, the statement go, goes after it. How do you set the right strategy? How do you set the right mission? How do you get folks to focus on things that matter by removing all the bottlenecks and the challenges still doing things right is still important but uh you know for ceos especially it's really important to bring bring in great great leaders and managers who can help you do things right but also you know for you you almost and the entire focus is about ensuring that what you're doing is the the right thing obviously easier said than done, but most of the mistakes I've made as a leader in the last 10 years is distracting the team, uh, you know, chasing after things that really don't matter as much or. Well, it's hard, but, but knowing there's a difference <laughs> is yeah. a great place to start, right? Yeah. 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 Well, hey, uh, Shashank, we'll, we'll, we'll call it there. We could go on for another hour or two, I'm sure. Hey, look, we're all rooting for your all success at Heirloom. Thank you so much, Chris. Uh, It was fun talking to you and yeah, we'll, we'll do this again. Awesome. Thank you so much for listening. Seriously, the world needs you and I know your time is super valuable. If you want more content like this, please subscribe to our weekly newsletter at entrepreneursforimpact.com. If you like this podcast, Please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. I read every single one, I promise. These reviews are the number one way to draw more attention to the world-changing climate CEOs and investors that I'm lucky enough to be interviewing on the show. And each month, I pick one listener review for a one-on-one brainstorming call with me. Who knows what can come of those? Finally, if you're a growth stage climate CEO looking for a confidential peer group to share best practices, expand your network and scale your business, then please apply to join our Climate Mastermind programs and Entrepreneurs for Impact, where our current amazing members have created over $4 billion in company value to mitigate climate change. Until next time, keep on fighting those good fights.